HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, your new pantry staple that brings proud, loud Asian flavors into your home kitchen. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Asha Abalasha, founder and CEO of Mason Dixie Foods, the company taking on the Pillsbury Doughboy one better for you biscuit at a time. Mason Dixie is the fastest growing frozen baked goods company in the U.S., and their biscuits and scones can now be found in freezers at over 5,000 retail grocery stores across the country. Asha, I'm so excited. We've been talking about talking um, for <laughs> for a while, and um, you know, I just have to say, I like everyone knows I, I read and I listen and. I love your story so much. I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. So Aww, welcome, thanks, welcome, Allie. welcome. Thank you no, so much. Yeah, it's been um, it's been really fun learning all about you and what you've accomplished. It's kind of amazing. Um, Thank you. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, you grew up in Baltimore. And from my understanding, your parents... Um, had a corner store or a, some sort of a, a little restaurant or a food stall, something. Um, tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I grew up in Baltimore City and my parents had a, I mean, here you call them, I guess, carryouts, but um, mm-hmm. I guess like in the city, like in New York and stuff, they're kind of like delis, right? But mm-hmm. we just happened to also serve hot food. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so I know it's like totally the antithesis of what everyone thinks um, Southern cuisine should be served by, but my little Korean mom and my Palestinian-Israeli dad are standing behind that counter shelling up fried chicken and collard greens and chicken gizzards and all that jazz. Um, So I I grew up on that food very young, um, and I always remember it even really small that um, it really didn't matter what walk of life you came from. Mm-hmm. Everybody enjoyed that food. So I remember yeah. I'd see, you know, guys in business suits coming in. I'd see construction workers, you know, all, mm-hmm. all sorts. 
Um, so I always thought it was interesting as I, as I grew older and, um, you know, I went to, I actually went to university in, in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought it was really strange that I didn't really see that cast of characters flowing in and out of like good, like, you know, homemade Southern comfort food type establishments. It just wasn't really readily available. Right. Um, but that's, but that's kind of my upbringing, despite being, you know, in a multicultural uh, bicultural family, um, you know, still having very American roots in food. Right. It's interesting that you say that because there's, I, there's a place on 10th Avenue um, that's no, it's like a Northern Indian slash Pakistani mm. food. It's, it's tiny. Um, but it is that kind of place where like, it's everyone, you know, people yeah. who are actually of that place and also people on dates where they've come mm-hmm. from the Upper East Side to come try authentic fill in the blank. Um, and there's something really unifying about food. And I guess in a way, the common denominator maybe, I don't know, is it is it the comfort? Is it the flavor? Is it the authenticity? Like, what do you think was the thing that kept everyone coming from all of those different places? Because oh, th- those places are special. They are. That's a really great question, Allie. Wow, you're stumping me on the first question. Jeez. Yeah, well, um, you know, <laughs> this is a this is a gotcha kind of podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think it's interesting because I think my my parents had very different cuisines. I mean, I grew up at very many times at home, even when they would cook their ethnic cuisines, there'd right. be three different cuisines on the table because right. somebody didn't like something or whatever, or they weren't familiar. Or, you know, like my dad actually, I mean, despite having a Korean wife, he hated kimchi. Uh-huh. And so I was just like, we could never eat it around him because he would just like lose his mind. Right. And then my mom hates lamb. Right. And he loved lamb. So like it was just a very um, torn apart household that way. So I think it was always a pleasuring experience and the unifying food was just very familiar American food. Like we loved, you know, fried chicken. We loved burgers, you know. Right. So because everyone would say yes to those, it was kind of the thing that the peace symbol, the mm-hmm. peace offering at the table. I think um, I think for a lot of immigrants, um, you know, who start these businesses, they always pick food because it's something they think that is scalable and easy to do because they all grew up cooking or yeah. grew up around family members cooking. It was like a low barrier to entry type business. But then when, you know, you realize, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you yeah. can't really cook kirahi for the average right. American, um, <laughs> you know, you decide to change it up and then you go, okay, what does every American love? And I, I, I honestly don't even know a single person who doesn't like fried chicken. I mean, I agree. Totally. Fried chicken. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, no, I think that's actually really true. And I'm curious because I feel like you did grow up around sort of a lot of, you know, varying cultures and you grew up around people coming to that place. And then it seems like you went to GW and ended up in a corporate world where, my feeling from sort of the interviews, and you didn't say it directly in, in any of them, but my feeling was that you felt a little bit um, like something was missing or like kind of like the joy got stripped a little bit or something. Like, I feel like, was there something in you where you were doing kind of what you were supposed to or should be doing by kind of making it in a corporate environment or a more sort of white collar environment maybe, but then we're missing something. 
Well, it's, it's really, um, there's a couple of things, I guess we could kind of go back to the first part of your assessment of like, you know, how I grew up and it's totally true. Like I, even, even growing up, despite seeing all this plurality in the, in the, um, carry out at school, you know, I, my, my sisters and I were like one of the only non white children in elementary mm-hmm. school. And then in middle school, we were one of the only non black children. Mm-hmm. So, um, we actually never really found a click and I don't think there's a lot of like half pally Korean kids running right. around in the world. But you know, um, you know, because there was never um, a group of us where we were forced to ethnically, you know, align with like, I didn't grow up with any Korean friends, I didn't grow up with any like, mm-hmm. you know, Israeli Arab friends or anything like that. So we kind of assimilated very quickly. Um, and but at the same time, like had had a real we were, I mean, at the same time, we grew up in like section eight housing. So like, right. I didn't really have access to white collar people. Right. So I, I didn't even know what I could anticipate for myself. I, it was always like mind boggling to me. My parents were like, oh, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to make money. And I'm just like, first of all, I'm scared to death of blood. Like I faint right. when I get a shot. Right. So there's no way, like God knows how I even have my period. I, I literally can't like <laughs> process that. And then, and then, you know, I'm a really bad liar. My dad's like, was like that, you know, just like facial distortion, yes, like me sweating. too. Yeah. yeah. So I like, because I couldn't do anything. So I'm like, I'm not going to be good at anything. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I struggled to figure out my place in the sun and then I, I didn't have any good white collar working examples of what the business world could even offer me. Right. So I literally was like, am I just going to be forced to not have a job? Like what's out there? And then you learn about like marine biology and like third grade. You're like, oh, I'm going to be a whale specialist. And right. your parents are like, what the hell? <laughs> That's not a thing. No, right. it's not a thing. So, so, you know, fast forward to college, I was still that lost kid. And, but, you know, I will say GW was amazing because I found a lot of um, my cohort of, of students had parents that were first generation somethings mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. self-made somethings. So the, the grind was definitely there, even if the kids were really wealthy. Right. Um, as opposed to like some of the other universities that are more like, you know, old money kind of right. thing. Right. No, that and, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I got a lot of exposure really quickly to what the world looks like for, for normal folks that have happened to have some kind of wealth. Mm-hmm. And it helped me understand that there is a whole world out there. Um, and I did end up, you know, working multiple kind of white collar jobs. Right. But I, it was just, there was just a general lack of passion until I really told myself eventually that I, I liked the world of business and I wanted to work in a luxury brand. I was obsessed with the idea because it was so far away from anything I knew. Right. I did, yeah. that I was like, that's going to be the ultimate accomplishment. Like if I'm the head of LVMH one day, I'm like, right. I'm there. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, obviously that doesn't really work out. If you don't grow up in luxury, it's really hard for you to get there. Right. Um, but I did end up working for Audi. And mm-hmm. to me, that was like the pinnacle of getting yeah, there. I was, that you know, is. It is, right? And it was and it was com- a combination, too, of my background that I'd cultivated, too, in like engineering. And I worked with companies like Microsoft. I worked um, at Toshiba. I worked at all these like big um, engineering-focused or, you know, um, techie-focused places. And I was like, this is a great culmination of all of that. And yet still... Um, the grind was not enough. Um, it's still a very old world in that, you know, men rule, women Mm -hmm. don't. Um, and I'm sitting there and I'm growing so quickly. I'm a, you know, high level, high level manager. And the next opportunity I have is to wait for the one woman to leave who's in HR or marketing. Right. And it was just such a bummer because I was like, here I am. I I landed that luxury job and I can't even do what I came here to do. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I was unfulfilled. And and yeah, I I hit this wall and I said, 
I got to work for myself. I, I can't keep doing this waiting for my, my chance. And I'm, I'm better than that. Like, how do I do this? And, you know, came back to the thoughts of like, well, what could I do? Where could I start? I put myself through um, college working at restaurants. I worked like two white collar jobs and then I worked uh, um, at two to three restaurants at a time. And I just remembered how like there was so much that could be changed about it. It was so archaic. Still really is, right? Still the beer wench serving you a meal, you pay, you leave. Yeah. Um, So I just thought there was a lot of opportunity there. And then, you know, kind of being in DC at the time still, I, I still was shocked that there was not a place to get good comfort food yeah. that wasn't in some horrific, like, you know, yeah. I'm embarrassed to go in here kind of place, you know? Was, was the, so a couple questions. Mm-hmm. One was, was the goal like, okay, I'm in this job, but I got to get out of this job. Now I have to think about how to get out of this job. Then, okay, I'll be the, you know, the sweet green of comfort food. Um, or was it, I, like, did you quit your job, I guess, before, after? No. no. Girl, and then, I didn't and quit then, my job until 2017. Yeah. I was right. <laughs> three years into the business. Right. Um, you know, for me, obviously, my my parents are, you know, immigrants and don't have a lot of money, didn't have any retirement. My whole, right. my whole goal in life was like, I have to make as much money as possible so I can support them. Yeah. And, um, you know, to me, it was like, I can continue to grind and wait for my opportunities, but I'm going to be coasting on this like flat six figure salary, but with six figure expectations. Like right. you don't get to have a six figure salary and not go to this restaurant to meet up with the influential people and pay the bill. Mm-hmm. You don't get to go into Audi and not be in the latest Tahari suit. Like right. you, you can't live a certain way. Um, and so like literally it doesn't matter if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you're spending 90,000 of it a year. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure you've heard that in New York, right? It's like all the, you know, mortgage, people and all the stockbrokers, they all have that same kind of life. It's Um, why rent the runway works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so for me, it was like, I knew I had to get started on something so I could build something while I was still making revenue and money. But the challenge became the growth happened so quickly that I was never ahead. And I, I, it ended up that I had to keep working not to like save money for my mom, it was, it was to, to finance pay for your the side gig. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And That's, it was, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse people don't think about when starting a business, but it can have what, you know, it's that magic question that no one thinks about is like, what happens if it, if it works go well? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So let's talk about what went well. I mean, we haven't even talked about it. So basically hearkening back to the things that made you happy when you were young and the things that you knew from when you were young, you opened a biscuit pop-up. I did. And um, from basically day one, I mean, I've seen pictures of the lines. I like to say Havens had a line out the door. It's like <laughs> it did, not every day, but it did. Yeah. But I haven't seen a line. This was a line longer than a city block. Yes. Like, yes. what the hell? How did that happen? And I, is that off the, like, just you hit the ground running? And how did you even... And and also going back to my other sort of multitude of questions, knowing that food wasn't exactly um, an easy business or one that was likely to make you a ton of money, it feels like although you wanted to create a place for yourself to land when you left your Audi job, you didn't 
you didn't start something safe in any way. You started something probably, arguably, you know, ridiculous. If you think, you know what I mean? But still Mm -hmm. you did it. So what was that? Yeah. So I knew if I was going to break out to do something, it had to be scalable so it could grow and be big enough that I could retire on a nest egg and have a nest egg for my family. Right. So it definitely wasn't going to be one, one off, you know, local boutique restaurant. Right. So, and, and I just, like you kind of said, right. I happened to be in a city where this like fast casual boom was happening. I mean, it started Mm -hmm. with five guys, then it, then it was sweet green, then it was Kava, Kava, then it was like all, you know, tons of brands that were really launching out of there and doing it really well. So I knew it was in a hotbed of activity from investors to thrill seeking consumers. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is the place to do it. Um, Food again was inspiring, but it wasn't the end all be all. I also thought experience was really important. And Mm -hmm. that was what I thought was lacking in general in the district. It was either, white tablecloth, stodgy, mm-hmm. or it was basically fast food, but with a fancy sign, right? Right. And expensive, um, you know, yeah. organic soda. Yeah. So I was like, okay, how do you bridge the gap when the reality is the top three items purchased in the restaurant world are pizza, burgers, and fried chicken. <laughs> right. And, you know, and that's where the consumer base really lies. But how do you make sure that people spending $12 on a salad bowl also want to spend some, some cash on a really nice high-end fried chicken biscuit? Right. And that's um, what you did. And that's what I did. Yeah, I focused in on the fact that I I knew there was a there was an opportunity in the daytime. There was not any anything but Panera or Corner Corner Bakery really mm-hmm. um, for breakfast. And I realized there was a huge opportunity in comfort food because the boom was in Mediterranean and salads, but it was not. Um, you know, there there had been a couple almost two decades since five guys had started. Well, I think um, also, even as we get into sort of like the, you know, the CPG part, which is coming up, everyone, um, <laughs> you, you know, what I, what I really like about you is that you are genuinely making a better for you product to use yes. like the terminology, but you weren't saying these are biscuits that also have ashtwanga and like right. <laughs> collagen. And like, they're also made with like, you know, roots from whatever that are going to make you live longer. Like you were just making a really good biscuit with like some really good fried chicken. And well, you bring up a really interesting point. And that was because, you know, in the start, um, I did a lot of consumer research and people forget to do that. They think they have this amazing idea Mm -hmm. and that they wrote a great business plan and then they just go to launch it. And the reality is, you don't even know what the customer wants. So I'll never forget one of the first things I did when I decided to focus on biscuits because it gave me that three day part opportunity. Yeah. Um, And I realized there literally was not a good biscuit on the market. Like I couldn't get a food service biscuit worth a shit. So I was like, that's not going to happen. So, you know, when building it from scratch, I was like, all right, I'm going to make a, and I'm not by any means a a professional chef, no pedigree whatsoever, but I'm a pretty good cook. And I I pulled out my old biscuit recipe that my sisters always begged for at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. I I made my crappy biscuits that I just like cut out with no joke, the end of like a rocks glass. And I, you know, gave it to my, my pastry chef at the time. And I was like, can you please make this better? But like the same ingredients I use, like don't mess with the Mm -hmm. ingredients because that's how people make biscuits. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, and he punched it out. And then the first ones he made, he just cut them square. Do you know that me presenting square biscuits to the world of consumers was as if I was like telling people that I was just like going to murder their first child. They were literally like, what is this? Right. Oh, I feel like I feel so gypped. What is this? This isn't a biscuit. I'm just like, oh my God. Yes, it is. It's just cut square. Right. Um, But that's the thing. There's a, there's something about this food that summons 
people to be experts all of a sudden. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was their grandmothers or yes, their, you know, it was Aunt ownership. Sally or whatever. Yeah. 100%. And so when I realized that, that's when I went to Kickstarter because I was like, all right, if this many people have this many opinions now, I wonder what it's like on a national level. So mm-hmm. I, I used Kickstarter as a platform. By the way, we're one of the first um, food concepts on Kickstarter because this is still when you could have like, this is the magic toilet paper roll right. on there. You know, Yeah, exactly. Like, so this is like know. 2013. Yeah, this exactly. It was 2014. Right. Okay. Um, like in the summertime that I was launching this thing. I mean, it took me months to really think about it, how to do it because it was just not set up for a food concept. So right. um, pulled the site together. And the whole point was like, if I could get Sally in, you know, North, North, so, you know, Northern California to say that she likes biscuits a certain way, then I got something here. So, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happened. I got all these people sending me recipes. I got mm-hmm. anecdotes. I got pictures. Um, you know, I didn't just get like a dollar, right? I got right. all these, like this, these amazing points of inspiration and cool. mo- motivation, right? Um, and I realized that this is how it's going to be. This is not going to be just food. It's going to be an emotion. And yeah. that's where, again, back to that whole thought of like experience is missing. This is where I was like, okay, it has to be about the experience too. And it, and that's kind of something as, you know, we fast forward to the consumer product. Um, I wanted to make sure that carried over. That carried through. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so before we go to the break, I want to just get to like, you had, you had these, the, the, how many pop-ups were there? Were, is oh it, gosh. There were well, a few. Yeah. We started out with, after the Kickstarter campaign had run and all these local folks wanted um, to taste, we had one big one at this um, amazing gelato factory, Dolceza Gelato in um, Northeast DC. And that's where we had the four city block lines uh, yeah. from 7am till we ran out every day. That's we did so that crazy. one weekend. Yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> and then we got granted a spot in a food hall. And that was the spot where like literally we sold out every day. We had lines through the entire food hall. It actually created more activity for other concepts to open because of the foot traffic mm-hmm. we were bringing. So, um, you know, we, we had a bunch of pop-ups throughout the city too, like, you know, breweries, distilleries, yep. bars wanted us in there just because the traction yeah. was so great. And, sure. you know, they got to do what they do best and we got to do what we did best. Yeah. So it was a great partnership time um, to the brand. And then basically you started, I mean, we fro- at Havens, like we would freeze our cookie dough, freeze our scones, and then the baristas in the morning would pop them in the oven and uh-huh. put them out. Um, is that how, I mean, were you, you weren't thinking about a frozen biscuit for supermarkets no. at that time, right? Not yeah. at all, girl. I mean, like yeah. at that time we were waking up at three, four in the morning to make the dough and then get it baked before 7 a.m. to get right. it to the market by 7.30. So it was it was not efficient, but it was the best we, re- we knew how to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And obviously with all the fresh ingredients and stuff, we were like really concerned about product integrity and making right. sure that it was still handcrafted. And so the idea of freezing at the time was kind of like, oh, is that going to be a shortcut that people will find the quality difference when they taste it? Right. Well, you know, reality was no. And no, not at all. It, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. It improved things and it improved our efficiency because then we could make stuff when, after we ran out early as hell on the day before. We just, you know, pump through a lot of biscuits, put yeah. them in the freezer, and then we could come in at five in the morning instead, instead and, of three, and bake them right. off. Yeah. And did consumers start saying to you, can I just have the frozen biscuits and I'll bake them at my house? Or like, yes. Yeah. So funny enough, we, um, we obviously were running out of biscuits. Sometimes I remember the first day, this is that it kind of inspired it all. It was like, I think it was like 10 30 in the morning. And we had this one regular who came usually on the weekdays and um, he decided to come on a weekend 
Um, and I want to say that he was just like really frustrated because obviously the line was inordinate. We were struggling to keep up and we were about to run out. Right. And he wanted to buy like a dozen to go. And I literally was like, bro, I can't afford to give you the dozen because I want to make the money because we've right. sold out because we gave too many dozens away. So right. I was like, I really need to save these for sandwiches. And he was just like, oh my gosh, you know, why can't you just sell me the doll? Just make it at home. And right. <laughs> then other regular came by and she was just like, oh, so sorry to hear us. She's like, I really wish you would just sell the dough because I'd love to know what these guys are like fresh out of the oven because mm-hmm. we didn't even have an oven girl. It was an 80 square foot, like, yeah. you know, style. Yeah. It was smaller than like an expo booth. So, um, you know, I, I was like, that's interesting. Two in a row here. I'm just mm-hmm. going to do it. I'm just going to freeze them and I'll figure it out. And so froze them. They turned out great. Yeah. And then I was like, what do I, what do I put them in? Um, yeah. I can't put them in like a Ziploc bag because everyone like report me to the health department. So right. I was like, I, I like went to Bed Bath & Beyond because the only place I knew I could get like kitchen equipment on the fly. Right. And I remember like sous vide machines, right? Uh-huh. Were the big thing. So I was like, all right, I don't need a sous vide machine, but I just need like the plastic. And then I realized there's vacuum sealers. Mm-hmm. So I bought like a hundred dollar food saver vacuum sealer. I need to be the poster child. I need to be the joy of vacuum sealers, by the way, because the amount of money I've paid to that company is you know insane. What? In your, in the biopic of uh-huh. your life, you know, like the, whatever Aaron Brockovich of yeah. you, um, <laughs> the vacuum sealer will play a large part. I, in, I think so. Yeah, when, <laughs> after we decide who plays you in the movie, which will be my next question. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. Well, you can think about that. I don't want yeah. you to be on that. Yeah. <laughs> I've never asked that question. That's a good that's um, a really good one. So you so and did you start like labeling them and having them as an option for people to buy at the booth, kind of like yes. in the yeah, right. Yeah. So I ended up vacuum sealing these things. And mind you, I was still working a full time day job at Audi, right? So I was like yeah. at leaving work, I'd get there at like 7 30. I'd be vacuum sealing these things until <laughs> like two in the morning and then you know, doing it all over again. And we, we didn't even have like room for a freezer. So I had to put them in like an igloo cooler and cover them with ice and hope for the best. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, even the, the chef would even verbally tell people how to bake them. Cause we didn't have stickers that would right. adhere to the yeah. seal bags. Right. Um, but yeah, we were selling them like that. And like, I'll never forget the first day we debuted them. I mean, it was like a Thursday. It wasn't anything crazy. And, um, I'll never forget. We, we ran out at like nine 30 in the morning and I'm like, so wait, you're telling me people are like not going to work or they're going to work with frozen biscuits or they're going out of their way to get them, to take them home. Like it was insane. Yeah. So, um, or they're baking them for their workmates and everyone will love them. Yeah. Right. And, and who knows, maybe it was all the above, but that, that momentum never shifted. And, um, you know, fast forward a few months to, um, uh, I want to say it was like the end of the year or sometime, maybe November, December, um, we got secret shopped by the regional marketing manager at Whole Foods. Yeah, there you go. They forage around looking for products. And um, I remember the day because I remember my chef telling me, you know, somebody somebody came in and bought like 12 of these things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Odd. You know, didn't yep. think about it. But then three months later, she emailed me and was like, we finished all the biscuits. My son is obsessed. I need to have them at Whole Foods. Can you drop off all the samples, wow. all the cases at headquarters 9 a.m. on Friday? And I was just like, 
where is headquarters? I thought they were based in Austin. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I don't even know what's happening. And so I saw in her signature line, it was Bethesda. So I thought it was like the Bethesda Whole Foods store. Right. So I walk in there and the manager's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, that's not, <laughs> I, we don't do that here. I was like freaking out. Did you, you have know? packaging yet? Or were no, you still in that? Yeah, right. Oh no, they were just in those vacuum seal bags. And they were, I just got like a file, like a banker's box, right? And I just threw right. them in there. And I was like, I told her when I got there, I was like, please do not, do anything with these. These are for you to enjoy. I promise, promise, promise. I will find a way to make these nice and merchandisable yeah. and we'll get there. Cause I didn't even have nutritionals. I didn't have yeah. instructions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't even know where to get it. Right. Yeah. This was 2014. This is before there was even like that big of a boom. Right. Yeah. Like this is still like honest tea era, you know, like this wasn't like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, it wasn't like, Google had to start a CPG startup, right? No. Yeah. No. And yeah. and there was not even like that much trade information out there. I was getting no. packaging information from the dialine.com, you know, right. like I, yeah. I had no idea. So, um, you know, I fast forward again, it took me about nine months. Yep. I got a freelancer and just a lot of Googling and yep. I don't know how he found these sample boxes that he found, but yep. he was able to find somebody to, to like give me like mock-ups and stuff and, we just figured it out. And I was like, all right, if it's in a box, it's going to be fancy enough for someone to want to buy them. So this is going to be good. So, yeah. you know, launched um, by some miracle of God the day before Thanksgiving. Oh, my um, gosh. That's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> yes, because we were basically banned from like, you can't demo at Whole Foods no. um, the day before Thanksgiving. Right. Right. So we were like, um, if we don't demo, this is going to flop, you know. So right. they were like, wink, wink you didn't, we didn't see you, you didn't see us, you just did it and you didn't tell us. And so at the time I brought on my business partner, Ross, and he and I showed up at like seven in the morning with like 300 samples. And there was like 150 boxes in the freezer that they bought that they hoped were going to last them. They made like all cute little like display and they right. hoped it was going to last through Christmas. Right. Well, and they we were gone. Through them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Three yeah. hours. Amazing. So 10 AM they were gone. And all of a sudden they're like, how can we get more? And I was like, I have no idea. That was everything we had. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. I love this story. I mean, it, it also reminds me a lot of us in a lot in a yeah. lot of ways. And we, and we built it very similarly. Um, but I, I I there's I have so many questions and I'm really excited because now we're gonna get into all of the things that you've learned basically from that day on. Yes. Um, we're gonna take a little break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, your new pantry staple that brings proud, loud Asian flavors into your home kitchen. Omsom partners with iconic Asian chefs to create rip and pour starters, which pack all the specialty sauces, aromatics, and seasonings needed to cook specific Asian dishes. No more diluted dishes, no more cultural compromise. Just bold Asian flavors at your fingertips, sitting right in your pantry between the tomato sauce and the olive oil. Learn more at omsom.com. That's O-M-S-O-M.com. I'm back with Asha Abalasha, uh, CEO of Mason Dixie Foods. Okay, before we get into all of the things I want to ask you, I do want to ask you about Ross. Because I know you guys love each other, and yeah. I know that he's been a part of the journey, and um, I just want you to tell everyone about Ross. <laughs> well, Ross is amazing. Um, 
the story of how we met is one of those for the books. Um, ironically enough, Ross was at the time a freelance writer for Thrillist on mm-hmm. the food section in DC. And he, we had won this like local, like, um, startup competition or whatever. And he was the interviewer that interviewed us for the first interview after we'd won. And so um, I remembered him from there. And then all of a sudden I kept seeing him buzzing around the commercial kitchen we were in. Mm-hmm. And so it happens that he had just quit his job as well. He comes from a big, you know, big company career as well. He was working for KPMG and hated life and, you mm-hmm. know, went to do something on his own and ended up being, um, he made, he made like, Prawlings, like nuts, like candied nuts, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and he was making them on the side at the at this kitchen. And um, ironically, then I saw him around. Then I stopped seeing him again, and I ran into him um, at a party or whatever. And he was like, "Oh yeah, I had to quit because I became allergic to nuts." Oh no! <laughs> he had to like you know shut the operation down because he was literally allergic to tree nuts. Right. Um, and then I was like, well, "What are you gonna do?" And he was like, "I don't really know. I'm not really that inspired." And I was like, well, "Why don't you come to my 30th birthday party and we'll chat? And, you know, we'll figure this out together." He was like, "Okay, sure." He comes to my birthday party. It was like a 90s. It was the best party ever. It was a 90s themed <laughs> birthday. Everyone was like all decked out, and he was doing the worm with one of my best friends, and I was like. <laughs> That's it. I have I love to them. have it. Right. Like, right. He's got to be my business partner. And so I walked up to him and I was like, so I know you're really good at business, right? And he's like, yeah, because obviously you have the finance background. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I know that you are not opposed to working in a kitchen, but are you allergic to flour? He was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I can't afford to pay you anything. Right. But I really want you to come in with me on this and help me start the consumer product side because my, my chef was just not interested at all. Yeah. He wanted to just worry about the restaurant. Yeah. So I was like, I need a partner. Will you, will you do it? And he said yes by some miracle. And I was like, okay, great. So he was not only like making biscuits, he was also fielding sales calls. He was right. handling all the logistics for me while I was still trying to like literally make cash to support the business. And then yep. on top of that, um, you know, trying to make sure the stuff got in the right place. And he was learning as I was learning. But, um, you know, eventually, you know, we made him whole and made him a partner. And yeah. he he's been my... I always say he's my second right hand. He's not my left hand. He's my second right hand yeah. because there's been so many times where, you, you know, things seem impossible and he never, ever said no. He never said why. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really also important to know, like, there's not a lot of LGBTQ representation in this industry whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and for him being an out gay man um, in, in an industry where we also sell, you know, a Southern product. Like, I'll never forget when we first came out of the gate, um, you know, we got some success in Kroger and Publix and we brought on a brokerage to talk about moving further south and, you know, getting more accounts. And we had talked to um, one buyer who basically said, because we put in that we were, you know, a diverse modern brand and, you know, that we um, were, you know, women owned LGBTQ and he's like, you need to take that out of the deck. And we were like, take what out of the deck? And he was just like well, we don't be doing that stuff around here. This is the Bible belt. Mm. And I was just like, okay, mm-hmm. um, we need to talk about this because you can never say that ever out loud ever again, because like you could be sued. Right. And <laughs> on top of that, like it was really devastating though, because it was yeah. like a moment where I I didn't know what to say. Cause it was actually really shocking. And it was like, he obviously didn't want to kill the sale. So he didn't want to bite back. Right. And at the same time, it was like so egregiously, inappropriate. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, it feels like, you know, I, I, I keep picturing you as the, like the girl behind the counter watching the people come in to serve themselves the fried chicken. And totally. like, I, 
it's like, I keep going, this was your food. This was your comfort that it's not owned by, you know, it's, it's interesting because in a way it's kind of like this other side to appropriation where, you know, the, the, the discussion right now is about sort of what's considered kind of like, you know, interesting global foods being appropriated by, Mm -hmm. you know, white Americans in a way, this is like, almost coming at it from another angle where who's to say who owns what food. Totally. And, and it's really interesting. I mean, and it's, it's now, you know, I never really, I mean, it's funny until this conversation, I never really thought about the two of you guys going into a buyer meeting, you know, and selling biscuits. Um, It's, and that's who did right. Yeah. By some miracle. That was the irony too, right? By some miracle. Somebody at Kroger and someone at Publix didn't have a problem with a half Asian girl and a gay man selling them biscuits, right, right. but then this one did. And I'm like, yeah. these are the two largest retailer segments for our product, and right. they didn't have a problem. And your ass is sitting here telling me that you're like homophobic, potentially right. sexist, and potentially racist, telling me that I can't sell a biscuit. Like it was, it was pretty right. intense. But yeah. you know, we we got through the moment together, um, and we made it our mission to just say like, well, we got to do everything we can to make a lot of gay money and we're going to spend it on gay causes. And right. one day his, his racist homophobic ass is going to be paying for it. So yeah. it's like, you know, um, you know, we, we ended up, you know, be, I think bonding and it was a moment where I think we both realized we're here for each other, no matter what. Yeah. And it's made for a very strong business partnership. I don't know how anyone does it alone. Um, yeah. You know, this is a scary world as it is. Um, so not having him to be like, no, we're going to do this, or, you know, maybe that's a bad idea or what is it going to take around? I don't think we'd be as successful as we are today. Well, how do you guys divide up the, I mean, is one of you sort of more on the operations and sort of finance side as in Ross and are you on sort of more the sales and marketing side or is it, is it less? Yeah. So it's kind of started that way when we were really, really small, right? When we first got started, obviously Ross was operationally making biscuits and also fielding sales calls because I just didn't have the daytime time. We were still working. I was still working. And in the meantime, I was doing all the finance stuff, like in terms of like finding investors or trying to figure out how we were going to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Or slash, you know, putting out my personal debit card for things. So, um, you know, that's where it started. And then we realized that there was like more to this if the two of us went in on things because we were just really dynamic. And I think at the end of the day, fun for a lot of these buyers, because who is selling you frozen bread? Some boring person from either General Mills or, you know, Furlani, New York, you know, T. Marzetti, some guy that's just like throwing it in the portfolio. And so here comes like, you know, this, these two young people, you know, feeding these people, right? Like we brought baked biscuits. We Mm -hmm. like brought, like we made sandwiches for them, you know, we did this whole thing. So it was fun. And I think we realized that we were both really good at it. So we ended up doing the sales calls together and we needed to learn like, we both needed to see what this was like because we had no idea what this world was like. Yeah. So, you know, he and I were just like, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, Laverne and Shirley running I'm thinking around the Sunny country. and Cher. Sunny I, and I, Cher, yeah. yes. That's <laughs> what we were like, you know, slinging and yeah. doing the thing. And then, you know, eventually um, as the company grew and we hired people, what I realized was he was really good at day-to-day. He was really good at details, nitty-gritty. Mm-hmm. And I was—I am a systemic thinker. I'm always yeah. thinking about strategically, how do we keep doing this? How do we keep growing? How do I, well, who do we need next? Yeah. And so it's been a really perfect partnership because he yeah. likes being in the weeds and I do not. Yeah. Um, he's good at being in the weeds and I am good at being in, you know, the 50,000 foot level. And yeah. so 
it's allowed us to grow very intelligently because he could see what's happening on the ground and I could see what's happening, you know, future forward. And that's kind of been the partnership since then. I mean, first of all, it's beautiful. I met him before I met you and his, his, the way he described you was like, I was like, who is this woman? You know, I've never, I, it was, it was beautiful. So there's clearly so much love there. Um, totally. Which is amazing. And, and in terms of that 50,000 foot, like, I think one of the things that you're saying, and I think this is helpful to, to founders is like, there is no 50,000 feet until a year or two in. There's like, there's, totally. there's, you're on the ground and you're just trying to get the thing made. And like, I, similar to you, like I went to the fancy food show with some sauce that I like piped into a pouch, but <laughs> we had no way of making these things. We had no, we had no, we stuck on some labels. We were sticking labels on for the first year plus. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you kind of, it's like the, the bigger you are, the further out you can see. And mm-hmm. when you're just starting, you're just trying to figure out how to make it, how to get it on some shelves, and then hopefully how to get it pulled off of some shelves, you know, yep. getting people to like it. And then when you start to think about, okay, how do I grow? Where do I want to be? As opportunities start rolling into you, you have to be pickier and choosier about who you work with, whose money you take. Um, by the way, sidebar, there are not that many people, as much as I love this community of founders and I love collaborating, there are not that many people that just send you investors because they uh-huh. think that you might like them and they might like you. You are one of those founders. I'll never forget it. And <laughs> I was doing my seed round and you introduced me to someone wonderful um, just because you thought that we would like each other, which just was very generous. Right off the bat. So, well, you got to help a sister out. I don't understand people that are cagey about that kind of thing. It's like, it's I don't not either. even your money. <laughs> I, think they're, I think they're worried that it's going to tire the, the, the investor maybe or like annoy them, you know. Well, then but, they have but, no idea how investment works. Right. Because they're <laughs> looking know? for people to invest in. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but so speaking of investors, so, you know, it felt to me very much like it was a, it was an act of love it ended up being wildly popular. That popularity turned itself into a product. You did do research clearly, but did you, knowing when you started at Whole Foods that day in 2015, were you thinking about the market? Were you thinking about the, you know, this could be the blank of blank or were you just hoping that it would go well at Whole well, Foods? Like, great question. Yeah. So no, I was not thinking of anything about anything. I was literally like, okay, this is a thing. This is a nice to have. It's creating a little bit of cash. This is wonderful. You know, I also was like, I have no idea how to position this because the goal at that time still was to grow this restaurant empire. Right. Right. And I was like, the only good thing is that this is building some brand resonance and it's a better, you know, tchotchke than a t-shirt. Right. I was like, this is cool. They can take a little bit of Mason Dixie home and Mm -hmm. have that at home experience and then miss us and come back and get, you know, some sausage gravy. Yeah. And that was all well and good until I realized that like, you know, Whole Foods is mid-Atlantic region is 60 stores deep. And that's like mm-hmm. way into like Pennsylvania and like Southern Virginia. And nobody knew who the hell my restaurant was. Right. right? So then there became this dichotomy of like people knew about us and then stumbled across the restaurant and then had to put two and two together. Right. And I was like, okay, so this is, this is spinning out of my zone of influence. Yep. And, um, you know, 
Ross and I took it the first year of 2016, really, we call it a foundational period of just understanding, you know, to, mm-hmm. to really understand the industry a bit more. We were lucky too at the time, lucky and unlucky. We were still manufacturing this thing at the back of a drive-through restaurant, but um, <laughs> you know, that also taught us a lot about like, what is the limit mm-hmm. and, you know, taught us we needed to scale. We needed to find a comey and we needed to deal with this in a real way. And that's when the money implications started really right. hitting, right? Like when you get to the point where, you do some desperate shit like we did, like we dropped like a frozen trailer in the parking lot, probably was illegal, but who knows? Right. You know, we, we had like the UNFI pickup truck, like pulling up on New York Avenue in DC to come yeah. in. And I was like, it was insane. Yeah. Um, probably not appropriate, but at the time it was what you had to do to get it done. <laughs> well, cause by the way, no co-packer would have taken you no. until you had that, you know, that, that whatever the word I'm looking totally. for. Totally. Not you know? one person would be right. willing to talk to us. And then when I, it wasn't, and that was the worst part, right? We had talked to all these people and they were all excited and it was like, well, what customers do you have? And it was like, oh, Whole Foods. And they're like, oh, Whole Foods. And I'm like, mm-hmm. like 50 stores, you know? And they're like, right. okay. Right. Yep. And so it wasn't until that Kroger, it was, it's always like, it's not even if you build it, they will come. It's literally like chicken and egg constantly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we got Kroger and Publix and that was the only ticket to getting anyone to talk to us. Yep. And they were, cause then they were thinking, okay, volume wise, I can deal with this. And so, right. and even, even then, I mean, it was really low, but we found some, uh, honestly, it was really great. It was a woman owned uh, manufacturing facility in Nashville. Oh, she took great. us under her wing. She really like helped us understand like all these components. And I was like, what do you mean I need cash? Like how much cash do I really, I was like, I was so confused because up until then we were, we were pretty good about um, Mm -hmm. keeping positive cash flow between the restaurant and the, you know, the limited business we had, it wasn't hurting us yet. Right. And she was like, girl, you're going to need a line of credit. Do you have a line of credit from a bank? And I was like, what What is that? Like, I was like, no. (laughs) And so, you know, learning all those things at once was really, it was a lot to digest. And honestly, it was three months worth of time. I know that sounds insane, but it was because between getting a yes from Publix and Kroger to launching off of a manufacturing line was yeah. three months. I am so lucky that that yeah. manufacturer made frozen biscuits. No, um, it's true. I mean, and it's interesting, right? Because you and I were talking a week or two ago about how right now, because of COVID, so fast forward, both of us have closed our brick and mortars. Yeah. I think you are more likely to want to do them again. I'm... I definitely love teaching cooking classes. I don't necessarily want to have a 6,000 square foot cooking event space anytime soon. Um, And I'm only saying that now after kind of processing the whole thing, but it it was a lot. It, It was definitely a lot. But I think, you know, both we were talking about how now I think a lot of very strong regional um, restaurants and bakeries and, you know, we all know of them are trying to figure out launching a product. Uh And some of them have a product that they sell in their own stores or, you know, they sell in their own restaurants, but they've never really made a big push into wholesale. Mm -hmm. And it's, while I think it's great and I am here to help anybody doing that. And a bunch of listeners have already contacted me about that. I do think it's important for them to understand that this is not a side gig. Like mm-hmm. there's it, launching wholesale at like a, the scale that you're talking about is a full-time job um, for at least one, maybe two, possibly three people. Um, it is. So tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of what you had to learn and how you had to learn it fast, I guess. Yeah. And um, 
what you would say to people who are kind of making either a pivot from brick and mortar to CPG or just trying to add that as a channel. And I, so it's funny. I, I I think you have the same issue too when you're telling people these things, but I hate to sound like a Debbie Downer. Yeah, of course. But I, I try to let people know like for every mainstream industry, there's a boom period, right? There was the tech boom. There was the dot-com boom. Then the tech boom moved into like the, the um, uh, restaurant boom, right? right? Fast casual is like the new tech. And then now because restaurants got really inflated and they're very CapEx heavy, then all of a sudden it was like products, products, products. Mm-hmm. So I want to be the next vitamin water and just put water in a bottle and I'll make $4 billion. Right. And so it, there was this rush um, to this market. And unfortunately, because it's a very cap- capital intensive market, in the beginning, there were just like bros in blue collar shirts mm-hmm. who, you know, got lucky because they got some cash and they were mm-hmm. able to buy a formula and they put it in a bottle and then they became successful or didn't, right? Then there was the other, these like fledgling um, cottage industry, homegrown people that were making awesome products. And I think you and I came out of that era of yeah. um, being lucky enough that there were one, there weren't rules. You know, there was still Wild Wild West and there were no um, Department of Health codes for doing products (laughs) in many of these cities where it wasn't commercial kitchens like there are today. Right. So in the six years that's passed, there's been a lot of infrastructure put into place to monitor, quite frankly, capitalize on us and and to make it very hard now for just anyone to jar, bottle, box something new. And so unfortunately, yeah, I'm going to interrupt you for a second, because I think what's interesting is they've made it on one hand, incredibly deceptively easy to Mm -hmm. do it, but incredibly hard to do it well. So it's like, that's the worst combination, right? Because you you can, anyone will, they're consultants up and down the street, ready to help you package whatever your grandmother's whatever, or, you know, you think that the world needs another fill in the blank. Um, right. And there, there are plenty of people along the supply chain that, you know, can design your logo or design your thing, but getting it to actually work um, is harder than ever. Totally. And that's, and you're exactly right. This is where there is a disconnect and you don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer by saying like, Hey, your product's great and everything, but you really need a lot of money. Are you ready for that? Right. And it's like, well, how much money do I need? I'm like, you got to tell me. I right. I, I want to help you, but I need to understand what it costs you to do this so right. I can help you. And then so those that are not open and forthcoming with information too, they get cagey. We're like, oh, what if she steals my idea? And it's not even about that. I'm literally trying to help because I right. need to know how you're allocating your resources and who's the best resource to get that cash in. Because you're right. right, this is so cash intensive now. And right. I think a lot of that is just the evolution of retail too, right? Like, that era of Whole Foods being that homegrown base type place where everything is happening out of an individual store is gone. It's yeah. now a very centralized being um, and it can't just accept products like it used to. Um, and that's, and, and the, the advent though, the positive is that these larger retailers are trying to do that, right? Which is great, right. but they still have big company problems. They can't break their systems for a $15,000 business. And I think that's partly what I'm like, I'm trying to do with this show. Like I'm trying Mm -hmm. to, cause you know, I definitely started off as like, everyone should just do this. And now I'm sort of like, okay, that's probably, I don't want to, I don't want to spread that message, but there are things that you can do to make it easier. You can do market research. 
you can understand your category. You can understand, for example, like selling in frozen is a very different model than selling in shelf stable or selling in refrigerated. They have different pricing structures. They have different markup structures, different margin structures, different types of distribution. Like, all, but and it's all you can learn all of that for free. You know, yes. it takes a lot of asking and a lot of questions. But I just think the way it's like we were talking. I don't remember if I was talking on the show or with someone else, but. There's stuff that you can be doing while you're working your day job, mm-hmm. you know, like you, that will be moving the needle forward and, and you're figuring stuff out and you're even going to make some mistakes, but the, the risk isn't as big, you know, if you just, if you do it that way, as opposed exactly. to, you know, I mean, I, I admire some of the companies that just have an idea go out and find, you know, two million, three million dollars to to start it before they even have a product. I I but it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I just I wouldn't know anything about how to do that. Um, <laughs> so okay, we have a couple minutes left. I want to talk about your team because I know that you were a little team. Um, yeah. you were you and Ross for a long time. And just in the last year or so you've grown it to like 15, 13, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that changes the dynamics. Um, yes. And how do you kind of hold on to your core while you're growing? When it's two of you or even three of you, you don't have to have concrete culture discussions because you just live it and you are it. Yeah. Um, so how, what have you learned? Is there any good hiring advice any good sort of team building advice that you have? Well, I think, and I think you have a lot of this too, Ali, is that um, authenticity builds culture. And Mm -hmm. I think if you live and breathe who you are, people are attracted to that energy and it just happens to attract the right types of people. So I, I love to brag that my team is half people that I've found or cultivated at the restaurant even um, to folks that I actually had to go out and headhunt. And I will tell you that I've only actually ever had to pay to find one person. Mm-hmm. The rest, um, if you ask the right questions and you get really good at LinkedIn stalking people, mm-hmm. um, you you can really find some nuanced talent um, that's out there. We're lucky. I mean, we're a frozen bread brand. You know, there's not a lot of activity in the baking world. And there's a lot of people that are in it and looking for the next yeah. Dave's Killer Bread opportunity, right? Yeah. So I was really lucky to be able to find those types of people um, who kind of have these like glory days visions of le- reliving and breathing that that thing again. Yeah. Um, and then I have, like, like I said, um, I have amazing talent from our restaurant who more than maybe skill base or knowledge of the industry, like screw all that for a second. Yeah. They had chutzpah, they yeah. had grit and they will sell you the shit out of a biscuit, right? Yeah. They, they are the best <laughs> salespeople I have. And they're the best brand culture ambassadors, building yeah. ambassadors. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they wear it on their sleeve and it's unteachable. And I yeah. feel like it really just came out of like, again, experience, right? The experience of being in that restaurant, I will never forget because it was, I mean, we were singing happy birthday to people. Mm-hmm. People were grooving to the music. They forgot that they needed to order at the, at the register. You know, like yep. there were those moments that I think really bonded people to, and, and my staff to seeing how, how it could be if yeah. you just did X, Y, and Z. And so they've been amazing at kind of bringing that perspective into the fold. And I think what, what they've also done, 
and and Ross and I have this, there is no ivory tower right. in this business. Yeah. I mean, literally, I'm not joking. Right on before getting on this call, I literally was sweeping the floor because it's deep clean day at the office. Yep. So, you know, we everyone bonds together over these things. We work hard, we play hard together. Um I think it's really important to just, it's always on accident, but I think it's a beautiful thing. We've just cultivated a very diverse team. Yeah. I have every minority uh, inclusion checkbox listed <laughs> without the intent of ever being that way. Right? right. It's just, I think people gravitate towards feeling um, uh, integrated and feeling accepted and not having to worry that they need to please a cultural identity or right. please a business identity. You come in here with the plain clothes you have on your back and you do the best damn job you can. And yeah. that's it, right? It's amazing too, because, you know, you're, uh, that that's your culture and you are building that. If you are, you know, if that's not your culture, then that's even the more reason to be authentic to who you are, because you want to hire people that are, not every founder I've met is, is building sort of, you know, that kind of a team. They're building a very top-down team or they're building, a, you know, a, they're, they come from General Mills and they're modeling that team. And, and that's I think all it's like okay. You, you yeah, know? I, th I think, yeah, exactly. It is okay. It's, it's what are you trying to build, right? I right. mean, for me, legacy is just as important as success right. because if one day, you know, amazing, if we get sold, great. It, or if we get bought, great. If we, if we, um, have to be here for 30 years. Great. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with both of those things because I want to know that I've bred successful people into this world, that I've changed someone's life, mm -hmm. that I've, you know, done something for myself that yeah. I'm in, you know, thousands and thousands of households now with a dream that came in a black yeah. box and now look at where we are. Yeah. So I think the tangibleness of that is like, if you want that for your people, you got to start with a strategy around who are you going to hire? If you just want to get in and get out, and there's a lot of us in this industry that do, right? Mm -hmm. They want that five-year ticking time bomb, and then they want to sell for the first offer. That's fine too. And that means, you know what? You cultivate the talent that's going to get you there, right. and you ignore maybe culture building. You ignore long-term value of the environment you're building for, for the sake of you got a goal, you got a deadline, and you want to hit this magical yep. monetary value, right? Yep. Yeah. No. Um, last question. Uh, what do you wish you had known? Oh, you know, <laughs> five years ago, three years ago, what do you wish someone had told you? Oh gosh. That's you, you asked really pointed questions. Um, I wish someone would have told me how quickly things can change. Cause I feel like mm -hmm. I've been living on a gasp for the last six years. And yeah. part of me feels like, part of me feels like I don't even get the opportunity to be retroactive and celebrate as much as no, I'd like to. We never and do. Yeah. No. And and part of me feels like I'm now permanently Energizer Bunny keeps going, 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 keeps sinking forward. Um, where if someone had told me like this moves fast, you got to put that plan in place now. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to think this way now. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality is this industry it grew itself in the last six years and yep. there just wasn't enough guidance at the time that I got started, which is why I spend and why you spend right. So much time mm -hmm. cultivating this knowledge for these people entering into this landscape now, yep. because like, let's just take this COVID world, right. And all these restaurateurs that are moving into the consumer space. The last thing I wanted to have happen to them as the 
dreams of owning a restaurant are crushed yeah. is enter into a space where they think there's all this opportunity yeah. and then a second dream is crushed, yeah, right? Totally. Like build in that knowledge and, and for us to be part of that for someone, I think is, yeah. is part of our, our mission. And I, I wish I had that back then. Well, Asha, I could talk to you forever. Um, I love everything. I want to end on a quote that I read that you said, I want Mason Dixie to stand for the modern face of Southern food. Here we are in 2020. There's no reason to have the 1950s housewife as the symbol of a modern Southern cook. I think that's a really cool way to frame it. Um, and again, I just love what you guys are doing. I love that you beat to your own drum. I love the fact that everyone's tripping over themselves, trying to find the next route that makes you glow and you're selling really delicious, just beautiful (laughs) butter and flour biscuit, um, and scones and rolls. Um, (laughs) but, um, I wish you all the success in the world. I'm proud to hear you. And, um, you know, love you. Love you too. Thank you so much for having me. Jess, thank you for engineering as always. Listeners, thank you for listening as always. And I'll be back next week with another, in two weeks with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.